I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I have announced that I am uh, going to devote the next several months, probably the next three or four years, to preaching on the life and teachings of Jesus. What I really mean by that is that I want to preach through what is in the four Gospels. Of course, most of that is the life and teachings of Jesus. But there also is a fair amount of material that is devoted to a very important person, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as we read in our scripture reading, uh, was the fulfillment of a prophecy. It was the fulfillment of a prophecy that was given in Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And there's another Old Testament prophecy that says that before the Lord comes, Elijah will come back. And uh, many people mistakenly thought that that would be a literal reincarnation of the prophet Elijah, but Jesus uh, told his disciples when they asked about that, uh, that Elijah, the prophecy of Elijah's coming back was fulfilled with John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is a highly significant figure, and uh, we have something about him in all four of the Gospels. Uh, One of the uh, certainly the most full uh, account of the miraculous birth of John the Baptist is here in the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read this text, I'm going to read all of it, and then just kind of paraphrase it as I take you through the three scenes that I, want to, that I think are depicted here in Luke chapter 1. If you've uh, paid attention to your bulletin, Uh, You may notice that I affixed a title to this sermon, a surprising answer to a long-forgotten prayer, a surprising answer to an old prayer. There are a number of things that I hope to emphasize from this text, but that will be probably the most important one, is uh, how how the Lord sometimes answers our prayers in surprising ways, and sometimes the Lord answers our prayers in ways that we are unaware of. I'm going to begin with verse 1, which is an introduction to the entire book. It has a couple of things, but I'll try to keep my comments brief. Um, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So this is introduction to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, Luke is one of the synoptic Gospels. The synoptic Gospels are virtually synonymous in the material that they cover. That's why they are called the synoptics. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they cover basically the same events that are in the life of Jesus. Sometimes we get a little different perspective. There are two men when we thought that there was only one or uh, various, various perspectives. There's no contradiction between the accounts that all three of, uh, of the synoptic gospel writers give. No, no contradiction. And uh, we have made, made available... Uh, a, a harmony of the Gospels. We only bought four copies, but if you will let Elizabeth know that you want a copy, if there's not one yet, 
Didn't want to order a bunch that people didn't want, but if you would like to have a harmony of the Gospels, Elizabeth was able to secure them at a price, and we're, off, we're able to sell them for $20, which is less than the church paid for them. But uh, we'd love, love for you to have this resource in your hand, think that it would be very beneficial. I am planning on reading a, a harmony of the Gospels several times, and then the harmony of the Gospels will also lay out the chronological and geographical sequence of what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. I am ashamed of myself that I've been preaching since 1978 and I still cannot give you a a careful accounting of where Jesus was when he taught this and where Jesus was when he did that. And uh, so it's one of my goals for this year to keep a careful, uh, I've got to draw a map for myself on a piece of poster board and keep a careful record of where Jesus was when he did this miracle and where Jesus was when he did this teaching and what was it that happened in Cana of Galilee? What was it that he did in Capernaum? And uh, there are only 183 events. And uh, if you just memorize two a day at the end of the year, then you've got the whole list memorized. So uh, no big deal, just two things per day. And uh, so I'm hoping to, hoping to do that. I'll try to maybe give you some memory aids along the way if there are any, any of you who are interested in attempting that with me. But uh, here Luke says there are many people who have uh, drawn up an account of the things that Jesus has done. And he he singles out that people who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants to the word. And so the gospels that we have were written by people who were either with Jesus like Matthew and John or people who were close friends with the people who were with Jesus People like Mark, John Mark, and people like Luke. And, uh, but Luke here says, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Uh, I can imagine that Luke was recognized to be something of a scholar, maybe a good writer, and uh, that there were people who were saying to Luke, please, uh, before all of these people die, uh, get a first-person account from them so that you can compile it into Uh, the events that have been fulfilled among us. And so it may be that, uh, well, I doubt if Zachariah and Elizabeth were alive at this time. They were already old when the story takes place that we're about to read. And uh, so it's very likely that uh, they may have been dead by the time Luke did his, his, uh, his research. But certainly people who were friends with John the Baptist and who people who knew Uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth were still alive. We have details about the birth of Jesus that sound like they were given given by Mary, and so it's possible that uh, Mary was still alive, and Jesus went and interviewed Mary and asked her about these things. And uh, so, uh, he and he writes this letter to someone that he calls Theophilus. Now, it's possible that the guy's name really was Theophilus, but it's also possible that he's writing it to Uh, Someone like you or me who loves God, because Theophilus means lover of God. Theos, Theos means God, and phileo is the Greek word for love, and so Theos, phileo, or Theophilus is a lover of God. And so it may be that he's just writing it for people like you and me who would like to know the certainty of the things that we have been taught. And uh, so here is, here is a reliable account 
Not only was it carefully researched by someone who probably was recognized as a scholar and a good writer, but also his writing and his research was superintended by the Holy Spirit, and we have the joy of having this in the Bible. Now let's get into his first story, the first thing that he tells us. Not in, other, not in the other synoptics, but here's something new. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, <clears throat> there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were well advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Note that. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, The Lord, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. We believe that the Bible teaches very clearly that God is in control of all things. There really is no such thing as an accident. We also believe that God has planned all things. We believe that God, in eternity past, decreed everything that was going to happen. And the decrees of God are His eternal purpose. 
according to the counsel of his will, whereby he has foreordained everything that comes to pass. When you see that the Bible teaches that, it will not be very long, if you're a thoughtful person, before the question occurs to you, then what use is it for us to pray? If God has planned everything that is going to happen, then what use is it for us to pray? Well, the answer that this text gives us is that uh, God answers prayer. There are some other answers to that worth mentioning. One thing to keep in mind is that even if you don't understand the purpose of prayer, you still ought to pray because God has commanded it. We must never let a theory about the sovereignty of God, even when it is the correct theory, keep us from doing our plainly revealed duty. And God has commanded that we pray, and so we ought to pray. I believe that uh, a second answer to that is that uh, prayer changes us. I believe that the primary purpose of prayer is not for us to make an attempt to change God's mind. Why would we want to change the mind of someone who is perfectly wise and someone who is perfectly loving? We don't want to change his mind, but prayer is one of the processes that God has ordained whereby we conform our way of thinking to his way of thinking. And so that's a very good answer. Why should we pray? Well, God has commanded it. We should pray because it is a way that we are conformed, our minds are conformed to the mind of Christ. A third answer, which I think is significant, is that sometimes God uses prayers in ways that we do not understand, and it is like incense poured out before him. In the book of Revelation, there are three instances where the prayers of the saints are identified with incense that is being offered up before God. So the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down before the Lord at one place, each of them holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then when, uh, when the Lord opens the seventh seal, then there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. And there are seven angels who come and seven trumpets are given to them. And then note this. And then another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden incense burner. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And smoke from the incense with the prayers of the saints rose from the hand of the angel before God. And then things happen. Things happen that are probably beyond the scope of the imagination of those who offered those prayers that are taken by this angel. I think it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is our intercessor. He takes these prayers. He offers them on the golden altar before God. And you know what incense is? It's something that is pleasing to the person for whom the incense is offered. And God is pleased. And then God answers these prayers in ways that people may not have been able to imagine. So I've given you three answers to the question, why, why pray in view of the fact that God is sovereign, he's planned everything, and he's in control of all things. 
First of all, pray because He's told you to pray. Secondly, pray because it is a way that God changes you. You're not changing God, but God changes you. Thirdly, it is something like incense in the presence of the Lord and pleases the Lord. And sometimes He answers them in ways that we never imagined. But here is the answer that I get from this text, and that is that God answers prayer. And I can't explain that, except that I'm able to say, and this only helps me a little bit, God has not only ordained the end, but he has also planned the means by which his perfect will is going to be accomplished. And one of the means that God has accomplished, that God has ordained for the accomplishment of his will, is the prayers of his people, the prayers of those who cry out to him. God has ordained who is going to be saved. But it's also true that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has ordained who is going to be in his kingdom. But it's also true, if you seek me, you will find me when you search with all of your heart. Because calling upon the Lord and seeking the Lord are means that he has harnessed to the accomplishment of his decrees, his eternal purpose. And here we see a a mysterious, almost unbelievable answer to a prayer that I suspect was long ago forgotten. But before we get to that, let's first of all set the first scene that we have in this text of Scripture. Now, I don't have a clear picture in my mind what houses in the first century in Judea looked like. But I suspect that this was a house that was on the edge of civilization and that it had a good view of the wilderness. Because the little boy who eventually was going to be born in that wilderness, and when the Bible says wilderness and it's talking about Judea and Israel, you mustn't think big trees. Don't think, don't think jungle. Don't think, don't think Bernheim Forest. Instead, the wilderness around Palestine is mostly desert wasteland. If you've ever been to uh, the desert in, in the western United States, that's the kind of wilderness that was mostly, and still is today, mostly around the land of Israel. But I believe that uh, the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth was probably on the edge of the wilderness because their little boy just started spending time out there in the wilderness. In fact, we'll see that he stays in the wilderness until the time that he is revealed to Israel, and that's when he's about 30 years old. So I would say that he spent a fair amount of time learning how to do things like brain tanning the skins of animals and uh, and just learning how to survive in the wilderness. And I love John the Baptist because he was a show-nuff man. Stand on his hind legs. You don't like it. Lump it. I have long hair and a long beard because God told me to not ever cut it. And if you don't like it, too bad. And here's what God says. Now, son, you're going to get in trouble talking like that. It's not my business to determine whether or not I get in trouble. It's my business to speak the word of the Lord, John the Baptist said. And may his tribe be increased. He's one of my heroes. What a house he was born into. I don't know what it looked like. I can almost imagine the petunias blooming in the the flower boxes outside the windows, though. I think it was a good place. 
But I know that it was a moral place because Zechariah and Elizabeth are described as few people in the Bible are described. They are described as upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Now what a house that was. What a marriage that must have been when both of them (coughs) were upright in the sight of the Lord, observing all of God's commandments blamelessly. What a house that must have been. But there was a continual note of wistfulness there. You know what wistfulness is, maybe. It's when you think about what might have been. I remember a little poem that I memorized years ago that includes the word wistful. It'll help you to understand what it means. Across the fields of yesterday, he sometimes comes to me, a little boy just back from play, the boy I used to be. And yet he smiles so wistfully once he has crept within. I wonder if he hopes to see the man I might have been. Isn't that a sad poem? This little boy comes and looks into the life of the man that he has become and just says, really? This is what you've done? With all the potential and all the opportunity, this is all it amounts to? I think there was a note of wistfulness that uh, was in the house. It was a wistfulness that had at one time been an anxious sadness, but now it had just mellowed into an autumnal wistfulness. Because the Bible includes years and years of agony and heartache when it says, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. How sad it is when people who just so much want to have children are prevented from having children, unable to have children. And what, uh, what a great avalanche of emotions goes on <clears throat> in the heart of a woman who just so desperately wants to have children and cannot have children. And then the years slowly go by until it looks like it's impossible to have any children. And what, what a deep sadness... What an ongoing echo of wistfulness remains in the life. The Lord never saw fit to bless us with children. And that really summarizes the only place that you barren women are going to find comfort. It is the Lord who opens the womb and it's the Lord who closes the womb. And he doesn't begrudge you your heartache and your sadness. Praise God that you want to have children in this in this age where, where someone who chooses to be a mother and a wife is looked down on as some kind of third or fourth class citizen, thank God that you want to undertake this most noble task of rearing children, having children and rearing children. God doesn't begrudge you your sadness, but he also doesn't want you to remain petulant, and fussy, and complaining, and feel sorry for yourself all of your days. Let that sadness 
mellow into a submissive wistfulness that, sa- wistfulness that says, God's will be done. He never saw fit to bless me with children. And then for you barren women who may be hearing this message, some of you in this room, others perhaps through some other means, find another way that you can be a mother in Israel. Find young ladies who need to be mentored. Pour yourself into them. There are children who, can, who need a mother and may be adopted into your, or your family. And thank God for the families in our church. When the Lord withheld you from having biological children, you opened your arms to children from other places. Praise God. We want to encourage you and help you in that in every way that we can. But what a home that was, Zachariah and Elizabeth. But here was this note of sadness. Now let's switch the scene from that beautiful home in the hill country of Judea. And let's move to the bustling streets of Jerusalem. And the center of all of that city was the temple. And Zechariah uh, was a priest. He was not a high priest. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And so there were certain times of the year when his division would be on duty. And uh, we find Zechariah in Jerusalem at a time when he's on duty. And among the many priests that were part of the division of Abijah, they had a system of determining who was going to have the privilege of offering the incense in the temple. They would cast lots. And this time, the lot fell upon Zechariah, probably the only time in his life when he would be chosen to perform this, uh, this honorable task of offering incense in the temple. Now, at the time that he would go to offer the incense in the temple, no one else would be in there. All the assembled worshipers were outside praying. And so uh, there was some fear and trepidation with this responsibility because it's a very awesome thing to go into the presence of the Most High God. And so Zechariah, with an appropriate fear, goes into that room, which I take to have been entirely dark except for the light that came from that menorah, the the uh, seven-tiered lampstand that was to be kept burning at all times. But you can imagine that those little seven flames never gave much light, as they wouldn't in this room if there were no windows and there were just seven little candles burning. And Zechariah goes and begins to perform his responsibilities of offering the incense on the golden altar of incense, and suddenly there's somebody there. And he was startled, and then he was gripped with fear. Of course, if you came into this room in the middle of the night, and you thought that you were the only person here, and you came to pick up your Bible where you had left it on the previous Sunday, And when you pick up the Bible, you're aware that suddenly somebody is sitting right there in the chair beside your Bible. You also would be startled. And maybe gripped with fear, but certainly if you came to perceive that this was no ordinary human who was beside you. This was an angel. I'm not sure how 
quickly that dawned upon Zechariah, maybe right away. But he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. And then this, your prayer has been heard. What prayer? What prayer has been heard? I think that if I were Zechariah and I were an old man, I think it's delicate the way that uh, Zechariah describes their situation. He says, I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's delicately put, isn't it? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. doesn't say she's an old woman. But uh, <clears throat> I think that if I were Zechariah and uh, my wife had gone through the change of life, that I probably just would have thought, well, there's no point in my praying that prayer any longer. But do you ever find yourself praying about people that you have long ago forgotten? And suddenly they just come into your mind. That happens to me fairly often. I, I will like, where in the world did that thought come from? I can't see that it's connected to anything. And then I think, well, maybe God wants me to pray for this person right now. And so I just offer up a little prayer for that person. But there are some prayers that I find myself uh, praying for people that have not been a significant part of my life for many years. And I have not prayed for them for many years. But all of a sudden, here it is. I pray for that person. And I wonder if maybe Zechariah, just out of habit, while he was there in the presence of the Lord, prayed that old prayer Lord, will you give Elizabeth and me a baby? And then probably just immediately embarrassed that he had prayed such a thing because I gather that it had been many years since Elizabeth had gone through the change of life and there was no hope of her having a baby in the, in the ordinary way. So he just kind of chuckles at that old prayer that <clears throat> rose to the surface and then there is the angel and he says, don't be afraid, Zachariah, your prayer has been heard. Oh, the mysterious ways of God and the prayers that he answers and the way that he answers them sometimes. When I was pastor in West Virginia, there was an elderly, elderly woman who was a member of the church, and I don't think she was ever able to come to church the seven years that I was there. She died before I left. But uh, I, I would go and visit her with some regularity, and she and I hit it off. So she was cut out of an old piece of leather, and she was a dear Christian, and she had lived, I think, back in the 1800s, and she could tell you things like, I remember when all the chestnut trees died. The hills just grew brown with the dead chestnut trees. And, and she would tell stories about famines and flu epidemics, and it was just like... Visiting with a, with a piece of 18th, 19th, century, 19th century history to visit with her. But she did have a heartache, and that was that she had one son who lived at the end of her driveway who was not a Christian, and neither was his wife, and neither were their children. And so when I would visit with her, we would always conclude with prayer, and we would pray for Jim and Elsie Hall. We'd pray for Jim 
and his wife. I, I'm, I'm being confused. The, the old woman's name was Elsie. I can't remember Jim's wife right now. Lona. So we pray for Jim and Lona Hull. And years went by, and uh, Mrs. Hull died. And as far as we could tell, our prayers had fallen to the earth. No answer. And then one Sunday morning, Jim and Lona Hull showed up at the Buffalo Baptist Church. And they kept coming every week. And the Lord saved both of them and brought them into the fellowship of that church. I don't know how much the saints in heaven know about what goes on earth, about what happens on earth, but I like to think that that one day in heaven, Elsie Hull received a good report. Your son, Jim, your prayers have been heard, and your son, Jim, has come into the kingdom of God. Now, there are some of us who are praying for people, and we've been praying for them for years and years and years, and there are times when we just about think it's silly to keep praying for them. Remember this story about Zechariah. Long after he had stopped in any meaningful way to pray that the Lord would bless him and Elizabeth with a child, an angel shows up and says, Your prayer has been heard, Zechariah. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You're to give him the name John. And then look at the way the angel describes the joy that is going to come to Zechariah and Elizabeth because of this son. Verse 14 says, and you will have joy and gladness. Then New International Version says, and he will give you joy, joy and delight, I think is what it says. But it's specifically directed. John is going to give you joy and delight. And boy, can you imagine. I mean, there are, uh, John and uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth become parents at the age when most people are becoming grandparents or great-grandparents. Can you imagine how delighted they were when this little baby was born into their home? God must surely have superintended their rearing of John the Baptist or else they would have utterly spoiled him rotten. It's just a miracle from God that any firstborn child does not end up in prison for the way that we we, we dote over them and read to them and give them all of our time and attention. And... uh, So God must have been watching over this situation because he continued to give them joy and gladness. And what a joy and gladness it is for us parents when we see our children growing up to be like John the Baptist. When we see our children separating themselves from the distractions and the pleasures of the world and devoting themselves to seeking the Lord. What a joy it is when a godly mother or a godly father sees their children receive the Lord Jesus Christ and then begin to serve him. What a joy it is. And Zachariah and Elizabeth had that joy. And I can tell you, lost child, you young person who has not yet heartily embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, what a blessing it will be to your parents when you repent of your sin and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to walk in the ways of Jesus. Yes, yes, Zachariah, you will have joy and gladness with such a son as that. But it's not just you. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Uh, He's going to be 
a special child. He's going to be dedicated as a Nazarite. A Nazarite uh, had special regulations. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And another regulation was he must never cut his hair. And so uh, the most famous Nazarite of the Bible would have been Samson. Uh, But uh, Jesus was, as far as we know, not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. Not the same thing as a Nazarite. He was from Nazareth, which called him a Nazarene. But a Nazarite was a special vow where someone was dedicated to the Lord uh, for, it could be for a certain period of time, but in some cases like this, he's going to be dedicated for his entire life. And so John, if he was like the average Jewish man, had quite a beard going uh, and quite a a shock of hair. And uh, he would have presented... Uh, a, a pretty formidable picture as he can, uh, carried on his ministry with such sternness and with such confidence and such manliness. He looked the part. And, uh, but many, so he's going to be a Nazarite. And then notice this in the middle of verse 15. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. What kind of a child is this? In a subsequent lesson, we'll see how that when this little baby in the womb, only about six months in the womb, when he hears the voice of Mary, he's going to leap for joy. He recognizes the the voice of Mary who is carrying that little tiny, that little tiny baby Jesus in her womb, so small that you probably couldn't even see Jesus at that time. But John the Baptist, a six-month-old baby in the womb, still legal to kill him in in the state of Kentucky, still legal to kill him in the United States of America, he heard the voice of Mary and he leaped for joy. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And you know, we have a tendency to think about the ministry of John the Baptist as being, I don't know if we think about it at all, a dismal failure. It seems like every time we encounter him, he's encountering resistance. But look at what the next verse says. It wasn't a dismal failure of a ministry. It says in verse 16, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Well, that's, that's encouraging. He turned many people to the Lord their God. They had largely abandoned God, but now he's turning them back to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, your, your eyes go ahead and you read what's coming next. But let's just suppose you hadn't read it next. You hadn't read what was coming next. How might you fill in the sentence? And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, calling fire down from heaven, destroying the false teachers that are plaguing Israel now. He's going to lead a mighty army against the the invading marauders. If he's going to prepare people for the Lord, if he's the one who's been prophesied, if he's the voice calling in the wilderness, wow, what kind of amazing, impressive things can we expect from John the Baptist? But now let's go ahead and read what does come next. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. 
seems to me like there was a pretty strong focus on the family in John the Baptist's ministry. And one of the things that he saw that was desperately wrong was that men were not stepping up and being the heads of their families. That men were not stepping up and taking responsibility for the education and the nurturing of their children. That maybe they'd just gotten so busy with this and with that and with other things that they thought, well, mama's going to take care of the babies. But now, in preparing a people for the Lord, he turns the hearts of the fathers to the children. Fathers become interested like they have not been before in being the head of their family and teaching their wives and their children in the ways of the Lord and making sure that they are walking in the ways of the Lord, going to the synagogue, going to the feasts when it was time to go to the feasts. You know, most of people are prepared for the Lord because the hearts of the fathers are turned to their children. I, in thinking about this, I thought about this congregation, and I don't know all of your spiritual stories well, but I know a few of you. I know that some of you were snatched out of a place where it looked like there was no way that anybody in that family was going to get saved. And God saved you. But most people in this church who are saved are saved because you were part of a family where the hearts of the fathers were turned to the children. And your mom and your dad took you to church. Your mom and your dad helped you to learn to love and appreciate the Bible. That is the way that throughout history, most people have been prepared to receive the Lord. When the hearts of the fathers are turned to their children. And when the disobedient are turned to the wisdom of the righteous. John the Baptist was given this great ministry of turning, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, making ready people for the Lord. Now, Zechariah, Zechariah can hardly believe it. In fact, it looks like he doesn't believe it. And he says, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And then I think things got serious. I don't think Gabriel chuckled at that one little bit. I think Gabriel said with all seriousness that made, made Zechariah even more gripped with fear, I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and unable to speak until this happens because you did not believe my words, which will take place at the appropriate time. And so John was stricken mute. And apparently he also was stricken deaf. Because later on when John is born, people make signs to him. What do you want to name the boy? If he could hear, they would just say, what do you want to name him? Write it down for us. But uh, apparently he was deaf as well as being unable to speak. When he comes out, the people, he's, he's staying a long time and the people know that something is going on and they realize that he has seen a vision in the temple. And then after that, Zechariah goes home. And so now we see the third scene very briefly. 
So we've gone from the, the little home and on the edge of the Judean wilderness to the bustling city of Jerusalem and the in, inner workings of the temple. And now we go back to the little home on the outskirts of the wilderness of Judea. I wondered, did John tell Elizabeth about the vision? Was his faith still so weak that he thought, I'm not going to get her hopes up about this? Or did he tell her? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But after he went home, Elizabeth became pregnant. Can you imagine the joy and the wonder in her heart when she realized that she was pregnant. And then she said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my reproach among the people. Can you imagine those quiet afternoons there on the the edge of the Judean countryside and with Elizabeth quietly getting some little frock ready to clothe her baby in. Zachariah not saying a word, not hearing a word, just quiet. But oh, the praise that must have raised up to heaven from that little household. The Lord has done this for me. Now, I don't know what part of this sermon is meant for you. It's blessed me all over the place. Maybe you needed encouragement about praying. Maybe you needed encouragement about God's uh, doing something in your life that uh, you'd rather not have happened, but it was the Lord, and you're called to submit to it. It is in this cheerful submission to God and His will and His ways and His Son that we find our true happiness, that we are reconciled to God. And if you remain in rebellion against the Lord, then I urge you today to repent of your sin. Call out to the Lord. Ask Him to save you. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to lead you in in His ways from now on. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.